Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Go. Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. At the end of the last episode, we left the Gemini program just as the engines on the Gemini Titan launch vehicle roared to life to begin the Gemini 5 mission. It was the 21st of August, 1965. Inside the Gemini capsule attached to the GLV were Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad. Cooper was one of the original seven Mercury astronauts, and until just a couple of months before, He'd held the U.S. record for the longest-duration spaceflight, having been in orbit for almost a day in May of 1962. That record had been eclipsed by Jim McDivitt and Ed White on Gemini 4 when they had stayed in orbit for four days. But when Cooper launched that day, he fully expected to regain his record and keep it for at least a little while longer. Gemini 5 was scheduled to last a full eight days beating not only Gemini 4's record, but also surpassing the all-time space endurance record set by the Soviets on Vostok 5. If all went according to plan, Cooper and Conrad would prove, on Gemini 5, that they could work in space for the length of time needed to complete a mission to and return from the surface of the moon. If everything continued to go to plan, that record would then actually be eclipsed again a few months later on Gemini 7, which was set to last a full 16 days, and which was the longest planned mission that NASA actually had on the books at the time. Still, Gordon Cooper had held the record for three years. With a little luck, he'd hold it again for another few months. All that was needed, as I said, was a little bit of luck. Well, and of course, a working fuel cell. Now, as we uh, discussed last episode, the fuel cell was the new and as yet not fully tested electrical power source that would provide the main power for Gemini 5. The capsule also carried an emergency backup battery, but it was only there to make sure that the spacecraft would have enough power to get home again safely in the event that the fuel cell either didn't work or stopped working part the way through the flight. If everything went according to plan, Gemini 5 had plenty of oxygen and hydrogen on board to allow the fuel cells to supply all of the electrical power that Cooper and Conrad would need for eight days, and then some. If all went according to plan, Cooper and Conrad should run out of food, water, and probably patience long before they ran out of power. I say patience because other than some basic rendezvous testing that would take place in the first few orbits of the mission, the Gemini 5 flight plan wasn't exactly action-packed. After the first few orbits, during which Cooper would practice some rendezvous and docking procedures, the remaining seven and a half days would be spent conducting a variety of medical, physical, and astronomical observation experiments. And while these experiments would be important and interesting for the U.S. space program, uh, for science in general, and particularly for the principal investigators who proposed them, um, Cooper and Conrad could probably be forgiven if they didn't see them as being the pinnacle of the test pilot's art. And remember that the two astronauts would be performing these experiments while confined to a space 
about the size of the front seat of the family station wagon, or minivan in a more modern reference. A space in which they would have to work, sleep, eat, and, um, well, do everything else they needed to do. While clothed, by the way, in their EVA spacesuits, the crew had advocated uh, strenuously that after the success of Gemini 3 and Gemini 4, um, that they should be required to wear those suits only during ascent and entry, and that they'd be allowed to spend most of the flight in essentially shirt sleeves. Um, NASA management was not having it, however. Space flight was still just too new for them to be comfortable taking that risk, and the only concession the crew was able to extract was that they'd be able to take their helmets off once on orbit, but the suits would stay on. So, in effect, most of Gemini 5 was going to be spent about as far as possible on the glamour of spaceflight scale as it was possible to be from Ed White's globally awe-inspiring spacewalk. Now, to be fair, most of Gemini 4 had been spent at that end of the scale as well. I mean, after that first day of Gemini 4, McDivitt and White had been, to be frank, heartily bored for three and a half days. In fact, one of their main pieces of advice to Cooper and Conrad was to make sure they took along a good book. Now, in the preceding discussion, you will have noted, no doubt, the number of times that I said the words, if all went according to plan. Well, you should view that as foreshadowing. Uh, now, once Mother Nature cooperated, the countdown for Gemini 5 had gone pretty much flawlessly. And similarly, um, the asset all was a little bumpy, with the crew reporting some significant pogo effect, and you'll remember that the pogo effect was that vertical oscillation um, that had actually caused some significant doubts about whether or not the Titan launch vehicle would ever be able to launch humans into orbit, but that smoothed out uh, at around the time of the first staging, and um, the final ride to orbit was pretty much without event. A few minutes after launch, uh, the Gemini 5 spacecraft separated from the booster it successfully established itself in a 160 by 340 kilometer orbit. And after that, things rapidly started to depart from the plan. Maybe not surprisingly, the issue centered on the fuel cell. Almost as soon as the fuel cell was brought online, it was clear that the fuel cell wasn't operating as expected. Specifically, the oxygen pressure in the cell was dropping quickly. In fact, it was rapidly headed for a level where the fuel cell wasn't supposed to be expected to operate at all. Uh, it was, effectively, the sum of all fears for the NASA team. The fuel cell, a system which NASA had very little operational experience with, was definitely not operating nominally, and NASA really had no data at all to help them predict what was going to happen. Now, to understand how the crew and the flight control team responded to this challenge, we have to talk a bit more about how flight control for Gemini worked. Now, quite a bit had changed since the days of Mercury. For instance, the flight control team had definitely expanded, uh, as we talked about in the last episode. It now included enough flight control staff to support the mission 24 hours a day. As well, the flight control team had expanded. It now not only included the staff in the flight control room, which, by the way, I will continue to refer to as the front room, because that's how I have always known it. it. But it also included flight controllers in supporting roles in the support or back rooms. Now, these controllers didn't participate in the discussions in the front room. 
and they didn't talk to the flight director or the Capcom directly, although they could hear them. Instead, they provided their front room controller with updated analysis and data so that the front room controllers could focus on monitoring and supporting the goings-on in real time. But that was uh, just what flight controllers did during MCC during mi- inside MCC during missions. Outside of MCC, the flight control team was now part of a much larger mission operations directorate known as MOD that was responsible for planning and preparing for missions as well as for supporting them in real time. In fact, um, by this time, most flight controllers would likely have been assigned to multiple flights in various stages of planning as well as the flight that they happened to be supporting in the mission control center. This allowed the flight controllers to become genuine subject matter experts Um, not only on spacecraft operations, but also on some specific engineering details of all of the spacecraft systems and a variety of other disciplines too, like fluid dynamics and orbital mechanics. So when any system started to generate anomalous data on orbit, there was some member of the MOD and flight control team whose job it was to understand the system well enough to know what was going on or failing that to know who to call over at the engineering team at the contractors who built the system and ask intelligent questions. In the case of the fuel cells, this flight controller was John Aaron, the ECOM, that's E-E-C-O-M, on Gene Kranz's team. He had spent the past year following the development of the fuel cell technology through all of its twists and turns. Outside of the engineers and chemists at General Electric, there probably wasn't anyone who knew more about the arcane world of the fuel cell than John Aaron. Luckily, he was in the mission control center when the crew on orbit reported their first troubles with the fuel cell. Uh, I say luckily, but it actually really wasn't luck, since the shifts were designed such that the systems engineering shift arrived in MCC um, so they could be present for launch, and for the first few orbits, because, of course... The most likely time for something to go wrong was in those first few critical hours of the mission. Um, Those first few hours were also the critical time for getting a handle on significant issues. And to understand why, you have to remember one of the things that hadn't changed since the days of Mercury, and that was that the flight control team was still very much restricted to communicating with the spacecraft when it was over a ground station. Just like in the days of Mercury, the Gemini Global Network consisted of ground stations distributed around the globe, um, each of which was staffed with a team of flight controllers, and each of which included an astronaut Capcom, who would actually do the communicating with the crew on orbit. Now, things had improved significantly since the days of Mercury, in that all of the ground stations were linked by voice communication, so there was no longer a need to communicate by teletype, but it still meant that the ground had limited opportunities every orbit to hear from the crew and to monitor the health of the spacecraft systems. And, just like Mercury, um, while those ground stations were distributed around the globe so that their initial trajectory of the Gemini capsule crossed over or near them, as the capsule's orbit precessed on each successive pass, the coverage gradually decreased. And, since NASA was no longer making use of ships stationed in the Pacific, And by about the sixth orbit, the amount of ground coverage was much less than half an orbit. And some of those um, exposures were pretty short because they are at the very edge of the ground station coverage zones. So, particularly the first six orbits were the time 
when the ground really had the capacity to help the crew troubleshoot ongoing issues. Now, the crew's day was designed such that much of the dead time after the first six orbits was expected to be during their rest or sleep period. But critically, before that gap was reached, so before the end of orbit six, a decision had to be made uh, as to whether or not to shoot the gap all the way to the next day, or orbit 16. Now, the problems with the fuel cell had started immediately on orbit one. Halfway through the second orbit, Conrad and Cooper uh, went into a fairly long gap in coverage over the Western Pacific, and when they came back into view over Hawaii, uh, the news wasn't good. The oxygen pressure in the fuel cell had continued to drop pretty dramatically. In fact, it was now below the level where it was supposed to work at all. The crew was still using the fuel cell for power, but they had become sufficiently alarmed that they had started to ration their power demands. In fact, even though they had deployed the rendezvous evaluation pod as scheduled, they had almost immediately suspended their rendezvous testing because it required the rendezvous radar, which needed a significant amount of electrical power, and they just didn't want to risk it. So the fuel cell issue had already caused the loss of one of Gemini 5's major flight objectives. Now, the main flight objective, that of the eight-day mission, was itself in significant danger. At this point, the fuel cell was still operating, managing to support the systems that were still powered up, but no one really knew how long it would continue to be able to provide even that low level of power. Now, there were backup batteries available, but they would only provide enough power to sustain the spacecraft for less than a day and still have the juice to provide power to perform all the functions necessary for re-entry and recovery. So once the decision was made to go with the battery as well, it would mean that the fuel cell would pretty much be taken offline and there was really no way to bring it back online later. So the decision to switch to battery power would effectively mean the start of an irrevocable process that would end the flight early. Now the timing of that decision was going to be critical. The decision needed to be made in time to allow for re-entry to occur on an orbit where there was a viable recovery option available. Now, you'll recall that we talked about this during the discussion of the Mercury missions. Even though the U.S. Air Force and Navy had ships and planes deployed all over the globe, there were still some orbits where they simply didn't provide viable recovery options. Now, either because there were literally no parts of the orbit that passed over a location where U.S. recovery assets could be there in a reasonable time, or actually because there wasn't enough ground coverage available during the portion of the orbit when critical operations like uh, setting up for re-entry would be happening on orbit, so the ground wouldn't be able to monitor the re-entry properly enough to make sure it was going well. So the first thing that the team on the ground and orbit did was to start buying themselves time. The longer they could go with the fuel cells providing sufficient power, the more options they'd have. So, in the extended ground coverage provided by the pass over the continental U.S., the team gradually figured out how to configure the spacecraft to use as little power as possible. Meanwhile, Kraft conferred with the other members of the flight control team to examine re-entry and recovery options. It turned out that the best option for recovery was going to be on Orbit 6. The recovery zone would be in the area of the Pacific southeast of Hawaii, 
that was not one of the primary recovery zones, but which could be reached by enough ships and aircraft to make it viable if they were dispatched immediately. So they were. While this was being done, other parts of the team uh, were not only trying to understand the problem, they were really trying to understand what options were actually available now. You know, because in a situation like this, it's actually a lot less important to understand the root cause of the problem than it is to know what options are still available in spite of the problem. You don't actually need to know what caused the problem as much as you need to know if you can live with it. Or critically, what additional data, additional data you need to help you decide if you can live with it. So while the team on MCC worked with the crew to gradually reduce Gemini 5's power consumption, engineers at McDonnell Aerospace in St. Louis worked feverishly to set up an engineering simulation to see if they could reproduce the problem and, critically, so they could see how the fuel cell would respond to the various troubleshooting and contingency procedures that they might come up with. All the while, everyone continued to watch the oxygen pressure, and it was still dropping. But it wasn't dropping as fast. By orbit four, the pressure seemed to have stabilized, and the fuel cells were still operating. The tests in St. Louis were showing that the fuel cells seem to be able to continue to operate not only at this pressure, but even at slightly lower pressures. Uh, with that data and a quick check of battery capacity, the call was made to press on to shoot the gap between Orbit 6 and Orbit 16. Now, needless to say, when the crew were asked what they thought, they readily agreed that, that, sh that they should go for a full day on orbit. And with that, Chris Craft's red team started their handover to Gene Krantz's white team. Now, having made the decision and handed over to Krantz, who had been in MCC since launch, by the way, Kraft um, was clearly becoming increasingly focused on the post-shift press conference. Uh, because, you see, at that time, uh, NASA had arranged that the flight director and the key flight controllers would brief the press um, directly as they came off shift. So, as he was leaving console, Krantz asked him for more specific instructions about how he wanted to proceed. And in a moment that was clearly etched in Gene Kranz's memory, he literally said over his shoulder as he was headed for the door, You're the flight director. You figure it out. Kranz remembers this clearly as a seminal moment in his career, likening it to the first time he ever soloed in an aircraft. I'd argue that it was actually a seminal moment in NASA's history. As you know, although Chris Kraft had not been the flight director for every moment, of every NASA flight until that time, he had been the only flight director that had ever overseen any mission-critical decision. It truly was a moment when mission control that uh, demonstrated that it had moved beyond its origins as kind of a, a high-performance flight test team. The NASA flight controllers were not merely a group of flight test engineers that were there to run tests and collect and analyze data. That ethos had worked for Project Mercury when the main objective was to prove that the U.S. could get to orbit and gain an understanding of some very specific engineering problems. But it was not an approach that was going to get NASA to the surface of the moon and back again. To do that, NASA did not need flight test engineers. It needed a mission control team that was focused on the success of the mission and not just on collecting data. 
a team that used its engineering and analytical skills to solve problems in real time and keep the mission moving forward 24 hours a day for as many days as it took to have a successful mission. In MCC, most of the flight controllers, other than Gene Krantz, probably barely noticed. And that was because they were focused on the flight in progress and the issue at hand. Having made the decision to shoot the gap to Orbit 16, the incoming shift focused first on preserving that option. Effectively, this meant that since they only had about 13 hours of backup battery life, with margin protected for re-entry, um, they left the Gemini 5 to limp along on low-pressure fuel cells for a time be- for the time being, because they weren't really going to try any uh, remediation procedures that might make things worse until they knew that in the worst-case scenario, the batteries would get them to the end of the day. In the background, the team in MCC and the team at St. Louis were examining possible procedures to solve, or at least improve, the situation. Eventually, John Aaron brought this analysis to Gene Kranz. Based on what they were seeing, Aaron and his team believed that the fuel cells could handle a much greater load. They had devised a procedure to purge the cells and then restart them. They believed that this procedure would clear at least part of the problem and probably start the oxygen pressure rising again. Of course, if they were wrong, there was a chance that the fuel cell might give up the ghost entirely. So, Gene Krantz waited until he was close enough to the first re-entry opportunity on flight day two so that they could get there on batteries alone, and then gave Ecom the nod to try the procedure. This involved running an oxygen purge, which basically meant flushing the system with high-pressure oxygen to remove any moisture or impurities. And then the spacecraft systems were powered back up, placing a load on the fuel cell. The first good news was that the fuel cell sustained the load. Um, Just to be on the safe side, the team and the crew then powered things down again and went off to look at the data. And the second good news was that by the time the planning shift was arriving to take over from Gene Kranz's white team, Kranz was prepared to give the fuel cell a tentative thumbs up. He and his team believed that the fuel cell could sustain the load of a nominally operating spacecraft, and that the oxygen pressures would probably start to rise once the load increased. So they recommended that Hodge and his team put together a plan to repower the fuel cell and start back up with the other flight activities on flight day two. Covered wagon was still on the trail. This whole episode with the fuel cells is not one that's really well known, except maybe perhaps for people who have an an unnatural interest in NASA's history. If it is mentioned at all, it's usually um, because getting past the fuel cell issue was a key to allowing Gemini 5 to continue the Gemini program string of early successes. But I wanted to spend a bit of time on it because I think it represents a little bit more than that to me. To me, it actually marks a moment when NASA's new mission control system and philosophy kind of came of age. I mean, it it was not a life-threatening issue, and it did involve a very technical problem that was with a system that wasn't understood well by most NASA engineers, let alone the public and the media. But it was still a very serious and potentially mission-ending problem. 
in a very real sense, a lot was riding on making the right decision about what to do with the fuel cell. A wrong decision might very well have put the crew in danger. But not allowing time to understand and fix the workaround of the problem would have been seen as a significant failure for Gemini and for NASA. This is exactly the kind of situation that the mission control system was designed to deal with. And the system functioned almost exactly as it had been designed to do. The team in the front room worked with the crew to understand the problem and the options that were available to, to them. They found ways to work around the issues and buy themselves more time. The engineers in the back room got busy analyzing data. The engineering support teams at the contractor's facilities found ways to simulate the situation so that possible fixes or workarounds could be tested. All three shifts were involved in finding, isolating, characterizing, and finally figuring out how to make a new plan to work around the issue that allowed NASA to continue the mission. This, despite the fact that they were confronted with a situation that was new to literally everyone, and for which they had not prepared pre-flight. It was, frankly, a process which I watched unfold in my time in MCC countless times, and it was a system that worked. It was also a system almost entirely dependent on people on the ground that could do high-quality engineering on a system that they could not see or touch, except through their telemetry screens and the first-hand reports of the crew on orbit. It was entirely dependent, in other words, on people who could go to space with that spacecraft and its cranky fuel cell, even though they never left the confines of the building in Houston. It was an essential Terranaut story, and so I wanted to tell it here in a little bit more detail. Now, it was also, in some ways, the high point of the mission, uh, I mean, except for the moment when Gemini 5 surpassed the Soviet record for the longest spaceflight, uh, Chris Kraft had actually had a countdown clock installed in MCC that had started at 119 hours and 6 minutes, and which had started counting down at liftoff. When the clock expired, he announced that, quote, America has just set a new space record. Too much applause in the Mission Control Center. Uh, Capcom suggested that Pete Conrad do a victory roll but he responded that he needed to conserve fuel, so maybe he'd rather not. And, you know, that, in a sense, was the tale of Gemini 5. Uh, NASA thoroughly eclipsed the old endurance record, eh, but they didn't do it in a gaudy, headline-catching fashion. They didn't take any victory rolls. They did it with solid, persistent, and consistent engineering. Throughout the flight, there were a series of anomalies, actually, and even outright malfunctions, including some serious issues with the orbital attitude and maneuvering system, that would cause, uh, you know, some moments of significant tension. But with both the crew and the ground controllers carefully husbanding their resources and getting the most out of the crew and their spacecraft, the flight went to its planned duration. When Cooper and Conrad landed after eight days on orbit, they also proved that a flight of that duration not, uh, was not only well within the capacity of human engineering, they also proved that it was well within the capacity of human physiology as well. Although Cooper and Conrad both showed some effects of extended time in zero-g, like lower uh, blood plasma volume and some calcium losses, 
and although they had not exercised as much as the flight surgeons would have liked, within two days of their return, they were pretty much physiologically back to normal. And with that news, Gemini 5 could be declared a complete success. NASA had proven that astronauts could live and work in space long enough for them to get to the moon and back, and the Gemini program could tick one of its most important boxes. So, by the end of Gemini 5, Gemini had done a bit of EBA, and Gemini had done long-term spaceflight. It was, finally, time to get down to doing some rendezvous and docking. Uh, but that saga is a long way from complete, so we're going to have to pick it up next episode. Because that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.